Well, aloha and good morning, New Hope Community Church. I am back. There is no place like home. Oh, I just spent the last week or so in California helping and um, serving my parents so that they move here for their retirement. I mean, man, that is hashtag living the dream to retire in Hawaii. Nei. So my parents are here with us now and to for us to take care of them and to give them care and make sure that their health is good so that they could um, enjoy and thrive in these sunset years of their lives. So um, thank you for um, continuing to, to gather and to hear the Word of God and to fellowship and to worship. You know, as I was praying and fasting this week, I thought uh, that the Lord would um, detour us uh, from our series just these next two weeks on our on First Peter, a uh, series called Stand Firm. Uh, just to address that, um, you know, I, I hear you guys. I, I get the text. I get the phone calls. And I feel it myself. I miss in-person church service. You know, we've just been doing in-person service these last uh, seven months. Uh, Christmas was, you know, a, a great service we've had. We were about three or four new families that visited us for the first time. And just as we we're picking up steam and momentum, uh, we were notified that we're unable to, to gather in person here at the Academy. But uh, rest assured, the council and the staff were working hard to find facilities to make sure that we're able to gather. But during this time, you know, I think uh, we could get very um, inward focused, where it's like, oh man, I miss in-person service. I miss the fellowship. I crave getting gathering together. I'm, there's no substitute for live in-person worship, and I get it. Uh, but uh, what I want us to uh, focus on and just kind of maybe has a, have a paradigm shift is uh, to think, of course, we want to think inwardly, but also to, have a, to think outwardly and to think of you know, evangelism and going out into the community. And uh, really what I want to talk to us about is a, is a message that's very familiar in Luke chapter 15. Um, and I titled it, The Prodigal God of Compassion. The Prodigal God of Compassion. You know, I can't believe it, but this coming October 8th, we'll be, Renee and I will be celebrating 17 years of marriage. 17 years, and man, it's gone by so fast. You know, just a quick context, you know, Renee and I, we started off as friends. Uh, she liked somebody else. I liked another girl. Um, and it came to the point where I told Renee, hey, drop the zero and get with a hero. And so we started going out. Uh, and I remember uh, the first time when I realized that um, I not only liked her, but I, I loved her. And it was just a big deal because knowing something and realizing for the first time um, and revealing that to her, you know, it, it was like um, a, an epiphany. And it was sometimes we go through these things where uh, the, the big dealness kind of goes away that uh, what's the old saying? That familiarity breeds contempt. That we get so uh, familiar to something that it begins to lose its punch and it begins to lose its efficacy and its power. Like when I first realized, I told Renee, I was stressing it out because, you know, I didn't want to say, babe, Renee, I love you. And for her to say, thank you, <laughs> instead of saying, I love you back, you know, and, and I was stressing it out. And, but really, 
this morning, there is a big deal of that's something that we're familiar with, but um, it's something that we should never take for granted. It's something that we should never lose heart. It's something that we should never lose its focus. Like, I get it. You know, things, it changes and it shifts from sacred to secular. Maybe it shifts from extraordinary to ordinary. Or, or it shifts from special to mundane. But there are some things that must never lose their efficacy. And there are some things that will... We should never be numbed by familiarity or it should never lose its shock value. And do you guys know what it is? It's this. God loves sinners. God loves sinners like you and like me. So I titled our message to, this morning is The Prodigal God of Compassion. Now, when we think of prodigal, a prodigal means it's spending money or resources freely and recklessly. It's wastefully extravagant. Now, Luke 15, it's usually called the prodigal son, where the younger son, he extravagantly wasted away his inheritance on lavish lifestyle, on extravagant living. You know, uh, he had the lifestyle of the rich and famous and wasted away his in inheritance. But, you know, I got this title from Tim Keller, who wrote a book called Prodigal God, in how God is extravagant in his love and his mercy. That God is wastefully, um, scandalously, God is gracious and compassionate and loving. And... So let's turn to Luke chapter uh, 15, uh, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, he receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, tax collectors and sinners, they were considered the lows of the lows. They were one of the most despised people in the ancient Near East, especially by the Jewish people. Uh, because the tax collectors, especially Jewish ones, they were a group of Jewish people who collected taxes for the government at a profit. So in other words, let's say tax was 10%, they would say, and they would tax their own people 15% and pocket let's say 5%. And it's basically, we could think of it like uh, war profiteering, profiting from war during like a fellow Jew, uh, Jewish family would rat out other Jewish people so that they could get money. That's how people viewed tax collectors. And usually in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tax collectors and sinners go synonymously. Right? Tax collectors and sinners, they go hand in hand. And tax collectors, they were perceived to be traitors and, and collaborators with Romans. Remember Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector? He says, if I cheated anybody, I'll pay them back four times as much. Now, in Luke chapter 15, verses 1, I really want to set the context here because there's, there's two groups of people. There's the tax collectors and sinners on one end, and there was the Pharisees on the other end. 
And in verse 1, it says that tax collectors, they drew near to Jesus. And what was the purpose of them? What's the infinitive there? What is the purpose of them drawing near to Jesus? To what? To hear Him. They had tax collectors and sinners, they had this heart to draw near to Jesus so that they could hear. And you contrast that or you juxtapose that to the Pharisees who were the religious leaders, who were the priests and the scribes, the people who were righteous. These were the pastors, but they drew near to Jesus to what? To grumble and to complain. The word grumble there in the Greek is diagoguzo. It's an onomatopoeia, meaning it makes the sound uh, that it makes. Diagoguzo, right? And the, the, the Pharisees, they, they express discontent in an emphatic way. And in verse 2, we see there is an accusation of Jesus. What is this accusation? What did the Pharisees and the scribes grumble against Jesus? He says, this man, he receives sinners and eats with them. So their accusation is two point. First is that he receives sinners. The word receive there in Greek is a paralambano, meaning it's to accept the presence of a person with friendliness to welcome, to receive, or to accept, or to have as a guest. So Jesus was accused of receiving and welcoming sinners, right? That's the first point. And secondly, he was accused of what? Eating with sinners and tax collectors. Now, uh, the Pharisees, they practiced ritual cleanliness. And not only did Jesus uh, welcome sinners and tax collectors, but what? He ate with them. So the Pharisees accusing Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners is not a new thing. In fact, it's been peppered out all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 16 of Jesus, Pharise uh, the Pharisees' conflict with Jesus. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Compare it with Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 19, and Luke chapter 5, verse 30. Look at Luke's gospel in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners so it's very consistent that Jesus he welcomed he received as guests sinners and tax collectors because Jesus loves sinners eating with someone it, it suggests a level of acceptance there's a cultural association of closeness and intimacy um, here in America that is uh, pretty universal you know, when you first want to know someone, um, you know, my parents, we've been having movie nights and um, you know, we letting them catch up on cultural references. And so the other night we watched Sleepless in Seattle with Tom Hanks and uh, Meg Ryan, you know, classic rom-com. And one of the dialogue that 
Tom Hanks was having with his son was uh, Jonah. I was like, hey, you just don't eat, you know, on a date. You just start off slow and ask them for a drink first because when you go for a drink, if you don't like it, you could just say, oh, have a good night. Um, thank you. But if you like them, then you could elevate to what? Eating and going out to dinner with them on a date, on a date night. Now, eating is very important because it suggests um, welcoming them and accepting them. It suggests intimacy. Um, when it's someone's birthday that, you, that you're close to, you don't give them, you know, uh, you give them the gift of eating. You know what? Your birthday, my treat, right? Uh, what was one of the last things that Jesus did here on earth with his disciples, which we'll celebrate this morning? The last supper, Jesus ate, broke bread with his disciples. What was one of the first things that the resurrected Jesus did with his disciples? He ate with them. So, was Jesus accusate, was the Pharisees beef? With Jesus, that they accused him of eating and drinking and welcoming sinners and tax collectors and receiving them. Was that true? Yes, it was true. Well, now, why was that a big deal? Why is it for the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that day, what was it, why was it such a big deal? Remember, the Pharisees, they knew the law like the back of their hand, right? The Pharisees, they were like double PhDs of the Torah or the law. So they, by the time they were five years old, uh, bait uh, Torah, they knew Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They, they memorized that at five years old, all right? And the Pharisees, they reached this doctorate level of understanding, PhD level of knowing the scripture. So what is the big deal of them Accusing Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, look at Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23. It says, listen, my son. So remember that um, this is a fatherly advice. Okay, Solomon giving advice to his son Rehoboam, who would be eventually be king over Israel. It says, listen, my son, be wise and keep your heart on the right path. Do not join those who what? Drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. Verse 21, for drunkards, those who drink too much wine, and gluttons, those who gorge themselves on too much meat, they become poor and drowsiness, drowsiness clothes them with rags. So what is, what we're, the Pharisees referring to they were telling basically Jesus by it's like Jesus you know the law we know the law you are committing Proverbs 23 you're eating you're joining gluttons and drunkards sinners and tax collectors you are being a rebellious son to the Heavenly Father you are being a rebellious son by eating welcoming, receiving, having these intimate meals with sinners and tax collectors. What were the Pharisees accusing Jesus of? They were accusing Jesus of being a rebellious son who hangs out, especially eats and drinks with sinners. 
In essence, they're saying that Jesus is a stubborn and rebellious son because he does not listen to the Heavenly Father. As they were grumbling, Yagaguzo, right? As they were grumbling and complaining, they were saying underneath their breath, man, darn you, Jesus, why are you so hard-headed? Don't you know that God doesn't want you to join with sinners? How come you're so rebellious to the will of God? Don't you know who the Father is? What's the big deal about being accused of a rebellious son? Remember, religious leaders, they had jargon. You know, they have um, nomenclature, meaning they have specialized language that only religious people know. All right? Like, for example, I'm not a gamer, but my kids, or Noah, my middle child, is a gamer. They say things like, oh, you're a noob. N-O-O-B, like you're a newbie, you're a first time, or you, you just got pwned, P-W-N-D. I don't know what that means, you just got owned, you lost. Someone dominated you. So they have, there's nomenclature or special languages that only gamers knew. So by Pharisees accusing Jesus of being stubborn and rebellious, telling him, telling him that he eats with sinners and tax collectors, they're basically saying, you are the rebellious son. Why is that a big deal? Well, because the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall seize him, the stubborn and rebellious son, bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateways of his hometown. Then they shall say to the elders of this city, this son of ours is stubborn. He is rebellious. He will not obey us. He is what? A glutton. Proverbs 23, who eats too much food, eats too much meat, and a drunkard who drinks too much wine. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it, and they will fear. What did we read earlier in Matthew 11, 9, 19? They said that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. Like, all you young people, all I'm saying is, you are hashtag blessed that you live now, not in biblical times. Because if you talk back, if you're a stubborn and rebellious son, they bring you out to the city of the gates and they stone you to death. Okay? But the Pharisees, they said that Jesus, eating with stubborn, with gluttons and drunkards, he is a stubborn and rebellious son that needs to be stoned to death. If you read the Gospels, they're always, the Pharisees were always trying to get their hands on Jesus. But Jesus slips away. Why do they want to get their hands on Jesus? They wanted to kill the rebellious and stubborn son who loves sinners, who welcomes sinners, who eats with sinners. So, they, Jesus is thinking, you know what? You think I'm the lost and rebellious son that deserves to be stoned to death? You think I'm rebellious to my father's will? Let me tell you how the father really is.
So in, in Luke chapter 15, verse 3, it says, Then Jesus tells them this parable. And there's a power in storytelling. There's power in being able to navigate stories. Or not navigate, but in, in really telling stories. You know, my kids were earlier, were younger, when they're about five, six, seven years old. You know, there was a time where spanking and um, scolding didn't really work. And, you know, the, the kids were just, I don't know, they were going through entitlement. And I was going to go, you know, just give them lickings. In Tagalog, uh, spanking means palo, all right? And another Tagalog word is dapa, meaning you lay down in your bed and you're gonna get you're gonna get spanked. You're gonna get lickings. And so, my wife's like, "Hey, babe, uh, I got this." So instead of just spanking them, Renee told the story of this entitled little boy named Prince who was always complaining, never grateful, always not appreciating, taking everything for granted that his parents did. And he was a little prince, high maka maka prince, and never listening to his parents. And by the end of it. You know, Judah and Noah, they're like, Mom, Dad, I'm Prince. I'm this entitled brat. See, the power to be able to um, tell a story. So Jesus then, he tells them this parable to show the Pharisees and scribes who God really is. And this is the context of Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal God. A God who is wastefully extravagant in grace and love and mercy. So we know it, the parable of the lost son. But before that, there's a parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Okay? And in these three parables, sheep, coin, and son, there's a common thread. You could write this down. Number one is something valuable was lost. Something valuable was lost. In 4A, it was a lost sheep. In 8A, it was a lost coin. Number two, there was a great search for the lost valuable. There was a great search. The shepherd, he leaves the 99 sheep in op open pasture and searches the rugged terrain in 4B. And the woman carefully searches her entire house, turning her furniture upside down to look for her lost valuable. Number three, there's a celebration upon recovery that the shepherd when he finds a lost sheep he gathers his friends to celebrate verses 5 and 6 and the woman finds a lost coin he calls her friends and her neighbors to celebrate verse 9 and number four <coughs> here's a common thread is that there is a conclusion there's like a moral of the story after these three things there's a moral of the story ah what is the moral of the story in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Alright, so those four things. Something valuable will lost. There's a great search. Um, and it warranted a, a party for it. And there's a moral of the story. Okay, now we get into the lost son. Or may I submit to you this morning the prodigal God verse 11 a man had two sons the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of the estate that falls to me 
So he, meaning the father, he divided his wealth between them. Let me pause here for a second. So in the ancient Near East, to ask for an early inheritance basically means, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't want you. I don't want a relationship with you. I don't want anything to do with you. I want your money. I want your inheritance. You're as good as dead to me. You might as well be dead because I want your, your money. I want your inheritance. Okay? And um, in, in the ancient Near East, the culture is that a father is to slap his son with his left hand not to hurt him really bad, but just more as a shame and a disgrace and kick him out of the house. But the dad here, because love must be free ultimately, he gives him the freedom to choose. He gives his son the freedom to reject love and to reject fellowship. Let's read in verse 13. And not many, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey in a, to a distant country. And he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Can you just imagine the disgrace? First of all, in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, he lost all his money. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's the kind of lifestyle that he had. And not only that, he didn't have any food. So if you could imagine a good Jewish kosher boy, anything unclean is so looked down upon so dishonoring but here he is not only is he feeding the pigs but he's among them and he's eating the the trash or he's eating the the food that the pigs were eating verse 17 but when he came to sense he said how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but i am dying here with hunger i will get up I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Let me pause here. This is a picture of repentance. First, in verse 17, it says, The son, he came to his senses. He's like, what on earth am I doing? I'm starving here, eating pig's food that's unclean. So he comes to his senses. In verse 18, he says, I will get up, I will go to my father, that he makes a decision, that he makes an action with his volition. He says, you know, I will get up, I'm going to say to my father, Father, I have sinned he against heaven and in your sight. Let's read verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up. He came to his father. And I love this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. Here's a third picture of repentance here in verse 20. It says, he got up and he came to his father. There was action. So he comes to his senses. 
He makes a decision and he takes action. And look at verse 20. But he was still a long way off. His father saw him and he felt compassion for him. And this is what my main point for us this morning. Would you write this down? Understand the heart of God. What is the heart of God? That it is a heart of compassion. In order for us to understand the prodigal God or the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, we have to understand the heart of God, that God's heart is a heart of compassion. The word compassion there in Greek, it's plagnizomai. And the root word of that, it's plagna. Splagna in, in Greek is, means intestines or it means guts. So for example, in Acts chapter 118, uh, Judas hung himself and it says his plagna, his guts, his intestines, his insides spilled out. So compassion, it, it doesn't just like feel bad for someone. Compassion means that you're moved to the gut. It means like your stomach turned. It means to experience great affection and compassion for someone. It's to have pity or to feel sympathy for. It's to have great affection. It's to have great love. It's to have great compassion. When the, son, when the father, well, he was still a long way off, what did the father do? He felt compassion for him. He felt love for him. I had a teacher in Bible college that said this word compassion is like taking a grenade with your teeth, pulling out that pin. And instead of throwing that grenade, you open your mouth, you swallow the grenade and let the grenade just kind of explode inside your gut. And that is the picture of the Father's heart for you and for me when he saw us in our sin. When he saw how the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy your life. When he saw the injury and the pain of divorce. When he saw the addiction. When he saw alcoholism. When he saw physical, emotional abuse. Verbal abuse. When he saw you hurt alone in this world God the Father has compassion for you and for me this is the heart of God remember the context is the Pharisees says what what are you doing Jesus you're eating with sinners and tax collectors with gluttons and drunkards how could you do that you're you're disobeying and you're, you're, you're rebellious against the Father's heart. And Jesus says, oh yeah, this is how, how you think I am? Let me tell you how God really is. God is a good shepherd. He would leave the 99 to seek that one sheep that was lost. Oh, you don't get it yet? Okay, God is like the woman. He searches, turns up her whole house, and then till she finds her one lost coin. Oh, you don't get it? Okay, this is how God is. That when his son, who wanted him dead, who wanted nothing to do with him, who wanted no relationship with him, just wanted his money, 
He, he gave him the freedom to choose love and he rejected love. But when his son came back, when he saw his son, he was moved with compassion. God is a God of compassion. Can you imagine that scene? Understand the heart of God. Now, one of the most brilliant um, artists of, in history is uh, Rembrandt. And Rembrandt, I'll show you here, he was one of the greatest painters and printmakers in European art history. And one of his last paintings before his death and where he was going blind was he painted the return of the prodigal son. Now, if you look through this painting, you see and notice the immense darkness all around. And there's a focused light on the father and his two sons. There's a deep scarlet robe of the father and the elder son symbolizing wealth and it's contrasted to the ragged garment of the younger son. You see the younger son here, bald head, meaning that he was a slave. He was kneeling, his face digging deep, looking down, burying his head in his father's stomach. You see his sandal, his slipper is hanging on on one foot, completely covered with rags. There's a, a book by Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and he, um, write, he wrote a whole book on the insights uh, of what he saw. He went to see the actual uh, painting, and he noticed, uh, we can go back to the picture here, you see the father's hand, his left hand is strong. You see it's muscular, it's calloused, it's veiny, and it's the hand of a father. And the hand is comforting and consoling his son. There's a sense of strength with the left hand. But you notice the, the right hand there? The right hand consoling and comforting the son? The right hand there is it's fragile. It's unscathed. It's uh, almost manicured like it's, um, it's almost like a woman's hand. And this is um, the, the, the painting of compassion. First Thessalonians says that uh, I, we came to you with the firmness of a father, but with the gentleness of a mother. And this is the picture of God's love for you and for me. That God is a compassionate God, abounding in mercies, steadfast in love, slow to anger. And let's receive the communion this morning. God invites us, Jesus invites you and me for intimacy, for closeness, for relationship. He provided a way. He, he loves you with an everlasting love. His heart for you is not to condemn you, John 3.17 says, but to save you. He's not here to judge. Jesus says, I, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He does not come for those who are well off. He does not come for those who does not need, quote unquote, need um, saving. 
He came for those who are sick. He did not come for those who are well. He came for those who are spiritually sick, spiritually dead in our sins. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is love. He is a compassionate God. That he's also God of justice and mercy, that because of our sin, sin needed to be taken care of. And he poured it out in his only begotten son so that you and I could have relationship with him. Let's go ahead and receive the elements this morning. Amen. So, for I received from the Lord, which I now deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, he blessed it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of compassion, that you are a God who is prodigal. You are extremely extravagant. You are scandalously wasteful in your love for each one of us. So Father, I pray right now for those of us who are straying, for those of us, Lord, who are um, lukewarm, that you would have a coming to sense just like the prodigal son that we would realize that you are the source of life that you are good that you are loved that you are faithful that every good and perfect gift comes from you lord that we would make a decision and decide i will follow you i would turn away from my sin and turn to you and lord i pray that we would take action that we would run to you and as we eat this bread, oh Lord, I pray for grace, I pray for strength, I pray for provision, I pray, Lord, for forgiveness of sins and spiritual sustenance, Lord, to love you, to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and eat of the bread. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of this as often as you eat, for as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim, let's proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's drink the cup together. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, for online church and sharing your worship experience with us. Remember, no, no live in-person service, uh, but please be connected so we can text you our updates. Uh, we love you guys. Have an amazing week. God bless you.